If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 17 as we uh, start off John again because it's the fall and summer is done and all the parents say, praise God. And all the students go, eh. It's generally how it goes. But if you are visiting with us, my name is Pastor Nate, and welcome. And as we open up the Word of God together, let us continue to worship our awesome God as we're in John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. Let me read this. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judah because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the the Jews' festival of the beast was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, for your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private." The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering uh, about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me, sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If not the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgments. And this is the word of the Lord. We live in a world of social media. It's everywhere. It's online. If you watch the news, if you go, we have an election coming up, and I guarantee you that is going to be all the polls from Twitter and Facebook. Right? That's where they get our information. Social media is everywhere. We live in this age of not only social media, but influencers. 
the whole term of influencers now is based on how many followers you have on whatever social media platform it is. It could be TikTok. So if you have 10,000 followers, you're an influencer or whatever it may be. Probably more than 10,000, probably more like 10 million. There's always this push to get exposure, to be known, to be known. The whole basis of social media is about that. We, we, we even try to twist the truth of our lives a little bit so that we can even look a little bit better. There was recently this trend on TikTok that said, show a time when you, everybody thought that you were okay, but you were at your lowest. Right? They wouldn't tell you that to the, your face, but they will show you on, on TikTok or Instagram about all those things. We have all this technology that helps us grow in our influence. And I love technology. I, have, I see the need for social media. I don't. It's a love-hate relationship. But even when you think back to you when you were growing up, how did people try to increase their exposure and their influence and who they are as a person? It's not much different for Jesus, as we saw here in, cha- in John chapter 7, as people try to make him more influential. His brothers actually are trying to get him to go to a festival so that he may gain an influence and that he may be known. Building tension as well within this passage, as we see Jesus's Uh, the hatred for Jesus being built up and built up, and you can feel it. For us who've read all of John, we understand that we're building up to the cross. But for the reader who may be reading this for the first time, they they feel the tension coming. There's a hatred that's continuing to grow as the influence of Jesus even grows, and as he begins to be more bold with who he is and what he is here to do. Who is this man who is the creator of the world Why are the people hating him so much are some of the questions that a reader may come up with. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for today and the chance we have to just worship you as we continue to worship you through the reading of your word. God, we pray for other churches here in London who are gathering the same way we are, who are preaching the word of God, who are singing your word, who are praying your word. Lord, I just pray for all the churches here in London that you would use them to grow your kingdom, that that you would bless them as they seek to be faithful disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And specifically, we think of redemption and Pastor Norm and the elders there. May you bless them and give them the wisdom that they need to shepherd the flock that you have entrusted with them. Lord, we just thank you for this day as we continue to worship you together through the preaching of your word. And God, there is no possible way that I could do this on my own. So Lord... Will you do that? Will you glorify your name today? Amen. I just looked down and someone wrote, preach the word. (laughs) Man. Thank you for whoever did that. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.2 is the quote. But as we look into John chapter 7, Verses 1 to 13, we see that Jesus came to glorify his Father. That is why he came. Here we are introduced to Jesus' brothers. You see, after this, 
after this time of what? Of all of the miracles that Jesus has done. So we're talking about the healing of the paralytic man. We're thinking of the feeding of the 5,000. We're thinking about all of those things that walking on the water, all of those things that are showing more and more of who Jesus is, that he is man, that he was born, but that he is also 100% divine. After all of these things, as John says, they go to Galilee and we're introduced to this idea that he wouldn't even go to Judea because he knows that there's people there who are trying to kill him. So he stays away. And the reasoning for that, as he says to his brothers, is because his time has not come. He is more concerned with following the will of his father and glorifying his father than whatever else may be happening. We're next exposed to his brothers. And his brothers come and say, hey, Jesus, buddy, big brother, because Jesus is the oldest. Why don't you come with us to the festival of the booths, do some, you know, let's not call it magic tricks, but, you know, miracles to help your disciples out a little bit. You hear the tone there a little? And Jesus' response to them is, you don't even believe. Just the comment that his brothers say to Jesus shows their unbelief of who Jesus is and why he is there and what he is there to accomplish. He's there simply to glorify his Father. Not himself, but to elevate his Father and to glorify him. On a side note, there's this Catholic doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity, which is talking about how Mary remained a virgin. I bring you the Bible. <laughs> Mary had children in order for Jesus to have brothers. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Just throwing it out there. But, there's, but as we're introduced to Jesus and his brothers... The brothers try to get him to come and to visit his disciples so that they may see some of the works. And we have to remember that not too long ago, there was a mass exodus of followers of Jesus Christ. Of people who were confronted with Jesus saying who he was and they didn't like it. So they left. And now the brothers are like, hey, Jesus, we got to get more. We got to get more. We got to get more followers. Come, let's go to this Festival of the Booths. And the Festival of the Booths was one of the biggest uh, festivals of, Jewish, uh, of the Jewish world. Tens of thousands of people would flock into Jerusalem. There would be so many people that they would set up these like tents called booths on, on top of their houses. And if you weren't from Jerusalem, you'd fill the streets. The streets would be filled and there would be a festival. It was a time of celebration as they reflected upon how God brought them out of Egypt and through the wilderness and brought them into the promised land. It was a time of reflecting upon God's amazing faithfulness. This was an epic party of food, of reading God's word, of coming together and reflecting upon so when his brothers come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, let's go to Jerusalem, we're not talking about a little dinky little thing. We're talking about mass media. This is huge. And this is big. That advice that is given, what Jesus says in verse 7, shows the brothers' unbelief. 
And that's where their advice is coming from. Isn't this the type of advice that we often get from Dr. Phil? Or TikTok? Or whomever? There's a different idea. There's different ideas of what the tone of the brothers is here, but regardless of whatever the tone is, the advice is clearly this. It is worldly. And Jesus confronts them. Think about it. They are telling Jesus that if he wants to be a religious leader, if he wants, if he wants to get bigger and better and more known and more influential, he needs to advance his interests publicly. Their advice was the same that you would get if you went to Madison Avenue in New York City and you hung out with all the advertising execs. It's the exact same advice. This is the advice that we often get as a church, right? The church. Promote yourself. Go to where the action is. Make a splash. And the answer to a church is, is change your appearance. Change your music, get a better website, get a younger pastor, get a better looking one. I don't know, I'm pretty up there, but. <laughs> but they should all be rooted, and none of those things are necessarily bad, but they should always be rooted in magnifying the Savior just as God, Jesus came to magnify his Father. Not ourselves. Not too long ago, we, I asked uh, Rena, to, who's a member here at our church, to kind of help us with some of our social media stuff. And I said, Rena, the only goal is not to promote Knollwood. At the end of the day, Knollwood doesn't matter. I'll be honest, it doesn't. I don't matter. You don't. <laughs> the point is this, magnifying our Lord and Savior. So, Rena, as we use these tools of social media, of Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and whatever else, the goal is this, make much of Jesus. Because that's our call. Our call is to be disciples, Christ learners, continually growing in our understanding of who Jesus is and applying it to our lives and growing in Christ-likeness and to go out and proclaim that to other people. That's our job, and we use the tools of social media to do the very same thing. Back in the day, I can say that, right? I used to do something called website design for all those, you know, you make those crazy things that people don't like, websites. You know what one of the things that we often had to do? Was elevating the brand. So when someone comes and talks to me about making your brand known, I understand. I get it. I know what it means to try and get your website and bump it up on the Google Analytics so that people can know you when they search churches in London. London's at the top. But when we're relying upon all those things, we're forgetting one thing. God is sovereign. He's providential. This is his church. Not mine, not yours. And that's what Jesus comes to do. He wants to glorify his Father. Churches want to get young people in, right? So what do they do? They change the music, change their appearance, get a younger pastor, better looking pastor, and try to connect to the younger generation because we want to build our brands. 
there's a pastor in the States. His name's Costi Hinn. Do you know the last name Hinn? He's not like his uncle. And he says this as he's talking about the generation, the upcoming generation called Generation Z. I don't know what happens when we run out of letters. We'll see. But Generation Z is 96 to 20, 2010s. All right, so generally those people who are in university right now all the way up to people in junior high, right, are part of the same generation. And you know what's something that's interesting, and he makes this observation, is that they are an incredibly dogmatic generation, incredibly dogmatic. I'd say probably more, gener- more dogmatic than any other generation. And by dogmatic, I mean that they are inclined to lay down principles as incontroversible truth. And they do that for liberal agendas, but they will also do it for the church. They will do it for truth. They will do it for truth. And if you give it to them, as he continues on, as you give it to them straight, you will find out it is not like the past where we spent all of our time trying to package Jesus into a nice, tidy little box. But we don't need to go soft on them to keep them coming. This is a generation that wants preachers to stand up and set themselves on fire and watch them burn because they're passionate for the Word of God. They keep coming and they keep inviting their friends because they know they are going to be told the truth, no matter how hard it may be. But if we are so if we're so fixated on building a brand rather than glorifying God, what are the things that we're willing to compromise in order to do that? But Jesus doesn't do that. He says in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed. And they don't believe until Acts 1, verse 14. When Jesus raises, rises from the dead and appears to his disciples, that's when we see them there. And they give this advice because they don't believe that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and they don't believe it. They want Jesus to build a brand, to gain more influence, and Jesus is only concerned with glorifying his Father. And what do we do with this type of of advice? What does Jesus do with this type of advice? Look at this advice. We look at this advice. We, we can even look at John chapter 6 right before. The unbelieving crowd wanted worldly results, right? Jesus performs a miracle, and they were seeking to make Jesus king. So they were rallying around him, and then Jesus somehow kind of wiggles himself out of that crowd and gets away. But they were seeking to promote him so that they can get something out of it. Jesus is different. He sought heavenly goals, and he knew they could only be achieved by godly means. Heavenly goals can only be achieved by godly means. And Jesus knew that. We have plastered on the back of our wall over there, out of the west entrance, we say, seeking to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. We're purposeful with putting seeking because we're not always getting it right but we're seeking, we're trying. But did you know that's impossible? That whole sentence is impossible if I try to do it on my own. I can't grow in Christ-likeness without the Holy Spirit that we were reminded about with Dave. I can't, even go, I can't even force people to be Christians. Only the Holy Spirit can convict people in their hearts. 
But I do those things, I go out seeking to be that with godly means because it's a heavenly goal. We're called to be disciples, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have plastered on. When I look at this idea where his brothers did not believe, I think for us as Christians, it should give us a little bit of comfort. If you, aren't, if you have unbelieving family or parents, if you have children who are struggling with their walk with God, Jesus comes, or J.C. Ryle has this wonderful quote right here. He says this, Many believers often blame themselves because their families remain worldly and unbelieving. But let them look at this verse before us. In our Lord Jesus Christ, there was no fault in him at all. He was perfect. There was no temper. There was no word or deed. Yet even Christ's own brethren did not believe in him. Seeing Christ's miracles, hearing Christ teach, living in Christ's own company were not enough to make men believers. The mere position of spiritual, sorry, the mere possession of spiritual privilege never yet made one, anyone, a Christian. I.e., showing up at church every day or having your parents saved is not the guarantee. But for us as parents, as we look at our children, that's why we rest in Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. As we continue on, we see that Jesus is hated in verse 7. But why does the world hate Jesus? Because his presence, by his purity, by his power, and by his prerogative, Jesus is telling the whole world that their deeds are evil. So here's my question. If Jesus comes along and says that the world hates him because he is the light in the darkness... Why is it that I, and I'm going to say me, but if you want, you can put yourself in there, always try to package Jesus in a way that's more acceptable? The guarantee here, there's two guarantees, right? Either we run to the light or we run away from the light. And Jesus here comes and says to his brothers that the world hates me because I am the light in the darkness. I am that light. We spend so much time trying to get people to like Jesus and make him more acceptable and make him kind of a little softer and, you know, Jesus loves you, but we forget that Jesus is the light and he exposes our sin and we hate that. We hate our dirty laundry flying in the wind, right? We hate that. Yet Jesus exposes it. He throws it open for, for everyone to see. He, he sees it all, and we don't like that. So we come and we run away, run away. The cross condemns all the worldly religions. A Messiah who came to die offends our pride by proclaiming the horror of our sin before God. This is why the Jewish leaders, like many people today, hate Jesus so much. Because, as he says in verse 7, I testify about it's that its works are evil. And then there begins to be this uncertainty that shows up in verses 10 to 13 as this uncertainty begins to come up and who can they trust? Are they going to trust the, the side that says, hey, Jesus is here to lead all the people astray? Or is here Jesus, the other side is, is Jesus a good person? Who do they trust? How can such uncertainties be resolved and we will see how he does that in verses 14 to 24. But in here, we see this amazing 
claimed by who Jesus is. And it begins to grow more and more dynamic and dramatic as Jesus claims his, his messiahship and the response of the Jews grows more and more increasingly hostile. Nothing is as disruptive as grace. Why is nothing as disruptive as grace? Well, what is grace? Grace is saying that I can get something without working for it. I got something without working for it. I, I can't work for it. It is impossible to work for something that is given to me by grace. And that's what God, that's what Jesus offers you today. This is grace. Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. He loves the world, as John 3.16 says. And here we see that the Jews wanted to put Jesus to death and they would put him to death but only at his appointed time. When Jesus dies on the cross, it's not an accident. It was on purpose, part of God's plan. And only for God's saving purposes will Jesus die. God's sovereignty never, ever sleeps. Even the most disastrous and inexplicable of all events are under his wise and governing hands. And even Jesus' own members struggled with this fact of who Jesus is. None of us can presume upon our relationship with Jesus. It comes by grace alone, through faith alone. And we too, like Nicodemus, must be born from above so that we might believe from within. But also, we need to put God first. He is faithful he faithfully endured the burden that many of us know well. Jesus has concerned for glorifying his Father. So what are you concerned with? As you interact with people around you, as people look at you, what do they see you are concerned with? There's an old Christian, let's call it a denomination, called the Moravians, and one of their leaders had this amazing quote in the 1700s that said this, preach Christ, be forgot, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. That was it. Preach Christ, die, be forgotten. Because our job is to magnify Christ. The flip side of that statement is that many people who do preach Christ and die are not forgotten. But as we see how Jesus seeks to glorify his Father, we also see how he submits to his Father's will. And Jesus stands up in verses 14 to 24, and he speaks for himself. And as he goes to Jerusalem in the middle of the festival, he stands up in the temple and he begins to teach. And the Jews are amazed by what they are hearing because he, they think he's unlearned. The text is actually talking about he has not followed the traditional way of being taught. That's what we're talking about here. He didn't have a rabbi. He didn't follow the ways of the rabbi. And to follow the ways of the rabbi was to be taught, hey, Rabbi Bob said this, and, and track that traditional thought from all the other rabbis so that I, as a newer rabbi, can say, hey, Rabbi Bob said this. That was their track of tradition that they went through. Not that there was a Rabbi Bob. But that's what they're talking about here with Jesus. 
And he says that Jesus' authority he sa- is coming from something else. And they're marveling at him because he does not have a rabbi. He does not follow a train of, of thought or of teaching. He comes up there. He reads the word of God. He proclaims the truth of the word of God with such authority that they begin to wonder, how can he do this? Where is it coming from? As he submits to the Father to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus states that the source of his teaching is his Father himself, as he says in verse 16. So Jesus answered him, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone wills, in verse 17, to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. See, the best preaching is that which causes us to remark not on the cleverness of the preacher, but the clarity of our understanding of the Bible. Martin Luther put it this way, unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of Scripture or by clear reason, since I believe neither the popes nor the councils by themselves, for it is clear that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures, he continues on, that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. That should be the motto of every preacher. The message that is preached from the pulpit must not come from the preacher or any other earthly source. It must come from the Word of God. This is why we ask you to open your Bible and follow along with us. So that you can can also see that this is not just our thing that we are saying off the top of our minds, but this is the word of God that we are proclaiming. We have no authority on our own. And just like Jesus, the preacher's authority comes from one place and only, and it's from the truth of the word of God. So his brothers in verse 17, from his brothers to his teaching in the temple, he is showing his obedience to the Father and who he is and what he has done for us. Jesus seeks to glorify his Father. And because he's seeking to glorify his Father in verse 18, there is no selfishness in the teaching of Jesus. No corruption, nothing that would make what he says untrue. No growing influence or stature will cause Jesus to alter his message or nuance his declarations. There will be no crowd-pleasing from Jesus. His heart is pure. His words are true. His hour is appointed. His purpose is set. He will love God. He will love his people. And he will go to the cross. And he will finish his course. Isn't it true that when you begin to suspect somebody has an ulterior motive, that you begin to lose trust of them very quickly? If we begin to suspect that people are trying to make a name for themselves, we grow very skeptical. We begin to wonder if they really care for us or if they're merely tickling our ears and giving us what we want to hear. We begin to wonder if they really believe that they are saying or if they are merely discerned, concerned with the way 
uh, with whatever direction the wind is blowing. We begin to wonder if they really have our best interests at heart, if they are really committed to serving us or doing what they can to love us and provide what is best for us, or if they are merely using us as a stepping stone to the fame and renown they seek for themselves. That's not Jesus. He's coming to seek to glorify his Father, and he's coming and he's submitting to the will of his Father. In a dramatic fashion, Jesus moved into the temple courts and began to teach. His words generated astonishment and rage. Astonishment because of the depth of knowledge he possessed as a merely untrained rabbi or teacher. Rage because his teaching exposed the people's sin. And at the same time, his teaching further distinguished him, his earthly authorities, and his heavenly status. He came to fulfill the will of his Father in that he shows the grace of God. The gospel of grace that comes to us because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in our place does not land on people in neutral ways. It does not. I've said this before. You cannot sit on the fence walking with Jesus. It is incredibly uncomfortable. You will pick a side. It is either received with joy or it is received with contempt. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16, the Apostle Paul calls the gospel uh, an aroma of death or an aroma of life. One that is hated by some and one that is loved by others. The gospel is the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to the others. There is no middle ground with the gospel. And Jesus comes to stew the will of the Father. He is not concerned with the will of those around us. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all this? The more I think about this passage, I see a struggle between what the world thinks and what Jesus says. The brothers thought that they could increase the brand of Jesus by just doing a few little miracles, right? Hey, Jesus, you know, could you do that bread thing that you did with the 5,000 again? I'm sure that that would win over a ton of people. But Jesus comes to do what? Glorify the Father. Jesus is concerned with obeying and glorifying his Father just as we should be seeking to glorify and obey our Savior. Jesus' teaching both confronted and explained the hostility of those who were hearing what he was saying. They were not seeking to do God's will, so they could not recognize sound teaching. They did not seek God's glory, but their own, so their hearts were false. Judging by worldly appearances, they discerned matters wrongly. They even called Jesus crazy, that he had a demon in front of him. But what Jesus is saying is, look, to hate somebody is to want to kill them. As the law of God points to. If we seek God's glory, we will humbly adore Jesus Christ. Instead of blaspheming, you have a demon. We will say with Peter, you have the words of eternal life. And you are the Holy One of God. And of all the things that we judge rightly, the first will be our own great need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and find our salvation through his death 
on the cross for our sins. This is who our Savior is. Let us continue to worship him today. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us. Father, I just pray that you are glorified and you're honored as we continue to praise you and worship you. Lord, I pray that we would be disciples, that we would continue to learn more and more of who you are and what you have done for us, that that would just set set us on fire for you as we go out into this world this week to seek to make disciples and declare the good news of Jesus Christ. God, you're so good to us. Words cannot comprehend what you have done. So Lord, I pray that as we worship you, as we spend time outside with each other as in a barbecue, that we would just encourage one another, remind each other of who you are and what you have done for us as we go out into this world seeking to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And amen.